Good morning. For scripture reading, I'd like for you to turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Book of Romans chapter 6. Brother Anthony will be bringing the message and we're trying to um, set a background here. One of the things that I thought about as I thought of Romans chapter 6, I thought about the incredible squeeze of culture around us. When you use a word, sin, um, you're going to get laughed at. Imagine if you'd be interviewed by someone in the media and you would begin talking about sin and what their response would be to that. And so it seems rather old-fashioned to be talking about that and referring to things as being sin, to being wrong, just because God says they're wrong and they violate his holiness. And yet verse 23 is that stark reminder that we really need to constantly tell ourselves the wages of sin is still death. Let's read. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer ha has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all but the life he lives he lives to God so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then, are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed 
and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. I want to take this time to welcome each one of you again. Thank you for being here. I pray that as we look to God's word, each one of us would be spoken to and that we'd be further sanctified. The title of the sermon is taken from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. You can take this time to turn there. The title of the sermon is taken from verse 5, where Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The basic sense of this passage is very simply that the Christian is commanded to slay the sin in his or her life. And this is to be done by grace-motivated action. Anytime that we talk about the Christian and sin, there is a seeming tension that comes along with this. Because there are two opposed realities in the life of the Christian. Who you are has changed. You are now in Christ. But sadly, at the same time, we recognize that there is the jarring presence of sin in our lives, even as believers. It's the fact of the already accomplished, but not yet. We're already in the heavenlies with Christ, but still plagued by our indwelling sin. My hope is that Colossians chapter 3 will give us some clarity and some direction as, as how we're supposed to handle the sin in our lives. And I would like to take just a, a minute to note that the beauty of expository preaching is that it first convicts and cleanses the person studying. And I have to acknowledge to you and admit to you that I'm not one speaking to you as one that has it figured out, but merely one that has recognized through this study that I have failed in my killing of sin. As a father, as a husband, as a fellow brother, I have failed in being responsible to kill the sin that is in my life. I praise God for the work that He has done in your life and in my life, but as I look at the past couple years of my life, God, yes, He has done a lot, but at the same time, there are tendencies, there are sin and root issues in my life that tend to carry over. And in our pride and in our self-satisfaction, we sit back and we, we start to think we're pretty, we're pretty all right. That is my tendency, at least. And that blinds us 
Because then we don't look for sin in our lives. We become complacent. So I, I, come, I come to you with this, saying that as a fellow brother, let's look into what God has to say to us. The beauty of this kind of preaching as well is that it removes the focus from the speaker, but rather to Christ as how this whole service has been ordered. The focus really is Christ. Sin killing must be grace-fueled. And it can be done by spiritually posturing ourselves heavenward. You will not be able to kill sin if you are looking to the world for your direction. You will not be able to kill sin if you are distracted by the world. And eventually it will kill you. The key here in Colossians shows us that we do this in a way that doesn't become legalism and empty works, but yet not being passive about sin in our life and in others' life. Paul very pointedly gives a list of specific sins that we are to kill. So I would like to define through this conversation what sin killing is, what does it mean, or uh, and then what it should look like in the life of the believer. What kind of action are you going to take? And finally, maybe some basic examples of how we should be thinking and how we should take action. The background of this text is Colossians and the Colossian church. And the Colossians had up to this point made much spiritual progress. And the Apostle Paul takes note of that in the first chapter. He, he thanks God for them and he prays for them. And this is because they were bearing fruit and growing. And as I have observed this church body, I am thankful for you. I have seen many of you, including my friends, grow spiritually, developing a love for God and the gospel. And it is a joy to observe this reality as it is God Himself who builds His church. And also, like these dear saints of old, we need reminded of how to fight well against our remaining sin. Some of the issues that the Colossians were facing at this time were, I'll give you a couple examples of what they were facing, and it was, this is the first one, that they were, there were people in the church insisting on having mystical experiences, visions of angels. They were forcing everyone to have this hyper, super spirituality. And if you didn't, well, you just weren't accepted in this elite group of spiritualists. And you still see this today. It's very common. It is false religion that distracts from looking to Christ. Another problem was that people were punishing themselves physically, thinking there was spiritual value in it. And you still see this today as well. Self-deprivation, harshness to oneself, thinking there is value. Another doctrine that these false teachers held was that Jesus was just, as, was just one of several angels that descended from God. You see, their problem was they believed in a sort of dualism that said, spirit is good, but matter is evil. And so Jesus, God, who was a God-man, did not fit philosophically in their little box. So what did they do? They found a way to make him fit. That it still doesn't work. And I, this is a caution to us. 
there are truths in the Bible that are many times difficult for us to reconcile. And this is a caution to us to not subject the truths of God to our own philosophical thinking. This causes spiritual shipwreck. It is not the Word of God that is at fault. Rather, it is our feeble minds that fail and falter to understand. So we're picking up in chapter 3. In verses 1 through 4, Paul summarizes the first two chapters of doctrine. And then chapters 3 and 4, he gets practical and he instructs us what we are to do. And Paul says, Because of your position in Christ, do this. Who you say you are must result in some kind of action. So several key concepts to consider that establish grace as the foundation for sin killing. There are three things to discuss. Our position in Christ. Our position motivates us to be heavenly minded. And then to discuss why should one be heavenly minded. So first, our position in Christ. What is that? In verse 1, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ. And what he is saying here is that you are dead to the world. It It could also be read, Since you have been raised. And he is saying, Who you are has changed. I took you from one world and transferred you to another. Our position in Christ is that as believers, we have been co-resurrected with Christ in the past. If you're here today and you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, several thousand years ago when Jesus Christ died, you were there. And you were resurrected with Him. At conversion, we became spiritually dead to sin and alive to Christ. You shed the old skin of death and sin, and Christ then clothed you with righteousness. So our position then spurs us on to heavenly-minded action. And I get that from verses 2 and 3 where Paul says, we are to seek the things above, but we're to set our minds on things that are above. In order to kill sin, we have to be looking in a certain direction. And I, I was telling the children in the children's service that I, like, I liken this a little bit to like playing softball. If you're at the plate and you're staring at everywhere other than the pitcher, will you hit the ball? Will you make a home run? Probably not. There's a good chance you're not going to hit the ball. The point is that in order to crush sin, you have to be looking in a certain direction. So it is with killing sin. We have to look heavenward. So we are to seek the things that are above. This is an active choice on your part that involves your will. We should be continually seeking these things. We should have a deep desire for the truths in the heavenly realm, which is to be like Christ. How can you be like Christ if you don't look to Him? We are also to set our minds that are above. This is more practical than the first one. Our mental orientation and mindset is heavenward. Instead of being consumed with what is here on earth, which is easy for us to do, Our minds should be focused on Christ. So instead of being caught up with worldly things, whether it's your free thinking or even legalism, money, fame, fitness, and fashion, we are to be seeking Christ. 
if you want to be like Christ, and I pray that you do, you should be consumed with gazing on the glory of Christ. So are you looking to Christ this morning? And I want to emphasize that we are called to action, but it's called to action that is fueled by grace. And I struggle many times with the idea that we are slow to action because we say, well, it's about the heart. And so if it's about the heart, we can't force this on him. He has to come along with it with his heart. But I want to show you otherwise. <clears throat> the question then is inferred here in the text, why should we be heavenly minded? And what is the motivator for killing our sin? An analogy here is that as a family unit, <clears throat> each one of you has your own little special characteristics. And you dress, you talk, and act in a way that reflects where you come from. If you're a Martin, <laughs> sorry, if you're a Showalter, there's a certain way that you dress, talk, and act. And just as it is in God's family, the way we dress, talk, and act must all reflect that. So why should we be heavenly why should we be heavenly minded? You have died. As a believer, you are no longer under the rule of sin. So is your walk in keeping with this reality? The heart and core of your sinful nature was replaced with a heart that is now bent to God. Secondly, your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is an amazing concept that I really can't get to the depths of. Your new life is not something that's contained to this material world. It's a life that is sure as the resurrection of Christ. And because of Christ's union with God and the Spirit, we are united to Him. You as a believer are all wrapped up in Christ. The imperishable reality of your salvation should not cause you to be negligent, but rather motivate you to holiness. Thirdly, when Christ appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. The third motivator. At the last day, for some people, it will be a sad day because they will bow with no choice. But as believers, we will bow in love and adoration. Christ, who is your life, will appear. Christ, who is the sustainer of your salvation, will walk up to you and say, His sin is covered. Her sin is covered. My blood covers her sin. And Jesus and God, instead of looking at your past and your continual sin and rejection of Him, will look at Him and say, I only see the righteousness of Christ. If you profess Christ and trust Him as your Savior, you will appear with Him in glory. So the keys to grace-fueled sin-killing are understanding this. Our position in the world has changed. And we're commanded to heavenly-minded seeking and setting. And we have, we have discussed briefly the motivators as to why our life and walk should match that position. If your life does not match your profession and you don't trust in, in Christ, 
Killing sin is of, is of no value for you. It doesn't benefit at all. Because of these heavenly realities, we are called to action to kill. But you have to start at the cross of Christ. Christian, the more you see and understand the glory of God, the glory of the Gospel, the more you will be consumed with right living. So it is, in fact, God's love and favor towards each one of us that spurs us on to taking an inventory of our, of our life. So now, to killing sin. And I would like to take this time right here to read verses 1-11. through 11. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. So we have here a list of things that the believer needs to be looking for in his or her life. And I want to define what sin-killing is. It is to deprive and cut off the oxygen to the flame of sin, to smother and snuff out anything that enables you to sin. The language here is strong. It's an imperative to take action, to slay, to lay to waste anything in your life. And I want to point out that in that first list of the bad sins, that it starts with external actions and moves inward to the root of all sin, which is covetousness and idolatry of self. So what are we to put to death? Starting in verse 5. Sexual immorality. This is any type of illicit sexual behavior. Fornication, adultery, the list goes on. Impurity. This is being filthy, morally, and unclean. Perhaps one is not apparently immoral and has not engaged in any act, but the filthiness of the mind exhibits the same issue. Passion. This is the driving force behind the first two sins of impurity and immorality. This is an unrestrained desire that seeks to temporarily satisfy every craving. Evil desire. Instead of fulfilling the natural and God-given desires, such as hunger, thirst, and sex, in a God-honoring way, this perverts those desires and makes them incredibly wicked because we seek to satisfy those out of the parameters that God has given to us. And then lastly in this list is covetousness. 
this is the root of all the preceding sins. Because it seeks to have something and get something that God has not given to you to have. He's given those things to you, but we have to seek them His way. So covetousness, covetousness is the unlawful desire to have something that belongs to others. The strong desire to acquire what is not ours to possess. And this is an idolatry. And it's easy to think that the object of what we pursue is in fact the idol. But I want to point out to you that the worship is in fact not the thing itself, but mirrors the worship of yourself. So when you seek something, when you seek to have something that is not yours, yours to have, you are in fact worshiping yourself. Then in verse 8, Paul changes and nuances slightly the way that he talks about killing sin. Instead of saying killing, he says now put away these things in verse 8. As sinners, sinning was a way of life before you came to Christ. And just like you take off filthy clothes after a hard day's work, you take off the nasty clothes of sin and you put on the clothes and robes of righteousness. And now notice that in this second list of sins, it starts with the source first and works its way outward. The source is deep anger that shows itself in, a, in all manner of action. And unfortunately, there, are, there, there is an attitude towards sin that we tend to develop, and that there are bad sins and there are good sins. So maybe you look at the first list and you say, I'm not in that first list, I'm good to go. Well, unfortunately you're not, because there's a second list. And if you're not in the first one, you're probably in the second one. So what are the good sins that we are to put away? Anger. This is a deep and smoldering, resentful bitterness. It's the settled attitude of an angry person that internalizes anger. It's easy for us to think, well, if I can control my anger and subdue it, that's okay. Sisters, when life doesn't happen the way you think, it should. Does your fear and anxiety give way to resentment that then seeks to manipulate and control? Men, our tendency and way of leading is to result to passivity. Being passive is in fact a reaction to an underlying resentment towards whomever is in your life. Wrath. This is an outburst of rage. It is an outward manifestation of an internal rage. This is more of a violent and uncontrolled anger that you see more visibly. And unfortunately, it seems that we as men tend to rule our households this way. It seems that sometimes that's the only way we can get a response, and that is sad. If this is the way we command respect, in obedience, we are sinning grievously against our families and against God. Malice, this is a mean and vicious attitude 
This is a wickedness that desires harm to other people and often hides behind good intentions. This is not only hurtful to people, but you demonstrate what you think and believe about God because when you cut other people down and you lay them and their reputation to waste, you in fact are communicating what you believe about God. Slander is a little bit like malice. It's tearing down the reputation of others with our words. And this is in fact motivated by an angry hatred of others. Obscene talk. This is a speech that is filthy or dirty. And can, it can also be an abusive form of communication or speech. Lying. This is communicating something false with the purpose of deceiving. I often tend to think of lying as a grade school sin. Well, that was something I did to my teacher when I was in fifth grade. But unfortunately, even as adults, we tend to be more deceitful than we want to admit. And I will point out that any time a person is involved in habitual sin, parallel to that reality is the fact that a person is also a habitual liar. Because in, in order to be involved in sin, you have to lie to yourself that the sin that you're in is not really bad, and then you have to con convince others of that reality as well. In verse 11, Paul gives a very interesting list of people groups. And he says this, he says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Without going into too much detail, these are a variety of people that he's comparing that in worldly eyes, kind of range from the top of the bucket to the all the way to the bottom of the barrel. The difference between Greek and Jew, the blessed and the non-blessed, the circumcised and the uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, these are people that were the bottom of society. The world today is in a confused state attempting to reconcile social and religious cultural tensions. What they don't realize is that at the foot of the cross, all differences and tensions dissolve. Today's plea for social justice will fall short and is disappointing. Social justice, according to God's way, brings true equality. And Paul says, since you are now in Christ, these social and religious barriers cease to exist. The gospel is what brings true equality among people. Because Christ is all and in all, He has smashed all the barriers and has become the equalizer for all people. And He has made us brothers and sisters. So maybe you're here today, you've heard this list, and you really don't think that you have anything to kill. Maybe you don't want to. I would like to discuss some reasons why one should kill sin. In verse 6 it says, The wrath of God is coming on account of these. As a believer, you should be making continual progress heavenward. 
This is going to look different for everyone. It, it's not a cookie cutter. But if you find that killing sin is not a way of life for you, be warned the wrath of God is coming on account of those sins. As amazing as God's love is, so equally terrifying is His wrath. And in fact, God would not be a God of love if He was also not a God of wrath because He is true to His character in hating sin. And that is in fact also what makes Him merciful. Jonathan Edwards in his famous sermon says this, speaking of the sinner in hell, I quote, When God sees the indescribable agony you are in and the torment that so vastly exceeds your ability to endure, and when He sees how your poor soul is crushed, He will have no compassion on you. There will be no moderation of mercy. End quote. Be warned that God's settled anger towards your consistent sin is withheld by a thread of His grace. And one day that will cease, and it will be unleashed upon you in a torrent of fury that you will not be able to withstand. A second reason to kill sin. You too once walked in them when you were living in them. Again, our identity and position calls us to holiness. Why would you live in a way that does not match who you say you are? It's easy for us to become self-satisfied and proud even in our spiritual progress. Think of that. This then comes out as a critical and judgmental spirit toward, out, toward others that is despicable. Rather, we're called to contemplate our own spiritual poverty, come alongside others and encourage them in their battle with sin. This does not encourage us to be passive about sin in others or ourselves, but rather be aggressive about it with a spirit of gentleness that seeks to restore the believer. In verse 10, we have another motivator, another reason to kill sin. The new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So we kill sin because God is working in us. There's a practical side of killing sin, actions we must take, but the divine reality is that our right living is under the watchful eye of a sovereign God on whom we are dependent for His work in us. This is not to the end of being morally upright. No, He is renewing your mind with the end goal of shaping you to be like your Creator. It is so important to understand that this change must happen with the, within the realm of your mind, within the realm of your thinking. Moral action that is not harnessed by this is spiritually useless. And I also want to point out that this renewing is not a one-time thing. This is a process. It is ongoing. It is an ongoing action of something that God is doing to you. So we recognize we are dependent on God for our sanctification, for our sin killing. So we should fall on our knees asking and begging God for mercy in our lives. 
An illustration of this is a newborn. When an, if, when an infant is born, it is born with its little legs, its toes, and its feet, and its head. It's complete, in a sense, but yet it's, there's still a, a state of infancy and incompleteness. None of us want a baby to stay a slobbering and burping mess. No, we expect growth and change and maturity. That hasn't happened to some of us yet, but we're still working. A baby is completely dependent on its parents for that growth and change as the parent is overseeing its growth, taking care of it. And so, we as Christians are also spiritually infants progressing to spiritual maturity depending on Christ for that growth. So very briefly now, how do we kill sin? I think there are at least two that I can think about. Two components of how to kill sin. Thankful prayer is key. It's been said from this pulpit before, so I can't take the credit for it, but thankfulness is the antidote to idolatry. In chapter 4, Paul's exhortation is to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Continual prayer that is grateful. Prayer of thanksgiving focuses on what God has blessed you with and what He has done for you. It causes you to get your focus off yourself and your own shortcomings and what you don't have and focus instead on God. Thankful prayer humbles you instead of pridefully coveting something that is not yours to have. This is an incredible weapon as you battle sin. So are you praying? The second key is the Word of, the word of God. In chapter 3, Paul says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. So the, so the question that I ask there is, so how do I let the Word of Christ dwell in me richly? And he says, by teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. It's as simple as this. In some way, each one of us should be giving and receiving teaching and instruction in the Word of God. We should also be giving and receiving warning and reproof. Is this happening in your life? Are you passing along the Gospel to others in the context that God has you? It is a gift to be able to skillfully and wisely reprove your Christian brother or sister who is in sin it is also a gift to be able to accept that reproof. Lastly, confession. There must be an acknowledgement to God. Confession to God that sin is in fact against Him and it is He who is offended. So as you consider the areas of life that you know need killing, Ask yourself, what is, what is enabling you? And I would add here that 
maybe you're still convinced that you don't have anything to kill. Maybe you have looked over all these things and said, thank the Lord, I'm not like those, I have nothing to kill. Well, if that is your, if that is your response, you do have something to kill now, the sin of pride. Remember, we must first start with grace. We must start by setting our minds and getting our heads in the clouds where God is. Then we take up arms against our sin. So I have some basic examples of how or along what lines one should be thinking. These are not exhaustive. These are just things that I thought about for my own personal life. Today we have all, all manner of tools and technology, things like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, all great tools that, can, that you can use to the honor and glory of, a, of God. But they can also be a medium for acceptable pornography and trash. Do you have the discipline to filter this kind of thing out? Do you know when you just need to get rid of it altogether? Excessive feasting on social media can cause one to covet the other person's perfect life. Remember that Facebook is just a highlight reel of the other person's highlights. It's not reality. Do you have something in place to help keep, keep it real in your life? Keep aware of the false representation that others portray. I read recently in a letter that was written to John Piper, somebody who I consider uh, a mentor in a sense. He was asked if it is too extreme and legalistic to do away with a smartphone. And I paraphrase, I paraphrase what he said. And this answers the question, so if it is about if change really is about the heart, then what kind of action do we call that person to? And he said this, you battle your sins on two fronts, the heart side and the practical side. It starts with the heart. We have to focus our minds on becoming so satisfied with God that we don't need to be controlled by sin. So we set our minds. But then we also battle on the practical front, taking action to avoid sin. So yes, you may need to take action and get rid of materials in your own house or in your own possession. Novel idea. <clears throat> I have recognized that one of the tendencies in my own life is that eating more food than I need is in fact covetousness. Wanting and eating more than what you need to be satisfied with is actually sinful. And I say this somewhat embarrassed, but I don't have an extreme lot. I don't have an extreme amount of discipline when it comes to food. And my wife is a wonderful cook, so there's a tension here. Uh, I have to ask her not to keep uh, snacks and cookies and stuff on the counter because the fact is, I would I would be incredibly uncontrolled, and I would tear through all that food. Trust me. So. I have to tell her, I really love your cooking, but let's keep it to every once in a while. I have to say, I can't have this thing in sight because I won't be able to resist. So that's a practical thing that I have to do. But at the same time, I battle that sin understanding 
that I need to become satisfied with Christ. That I need to be satisfied with something other than what is material. Brothers and sisters, continue to look to Christ. Set your eyes on Him. Consider the areas of life, consider the areas in your life that need killed. It is key to, to remember that you must know Christ. You must first trust and believe that He can save you from your sin and from His wrath. Remember that Christ, the God-man, He will once and for all kill your sin for you on the day of His return. So we don't battle with despair. We battle with joy and hope. Consider the practical measures you must take for yourself and your fellow brother to do battle. And I pray that God will bless you with strength as you do this. And take heart. Take heart in the security of your salvation because your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. Shall we have a song?